0: I love the line in that song, yet not I, but Christ through me. Amen? Amen. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Today we began a book study in the book of Philippians. We're going to be walking right through the book, and we've entitled the series The Joy Ride, a, a map through the book of Philippians. And if you pull back into the time when this was written, it was written by Paul. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. It was written 10 years After he had helped plant the church in Philippi, it was written while he is in prison. He's on house arrest for being a Christ follower. So he's chained to a Roman guard, writing this letter to the church at Philippi, who he knew well, he was there with them. It started with a woman, it started with a a man, and now it's it's a thriving church There aren't any problems in the church that he writes. A lot of his epistles, he's addressing a problem, whether it's legalism or law and grace. This church seems to be thriving well. In fact, he says, every time I remember you, I thank God for you. So picture, if you can, 10 years after a church is planted, a man that they dearly love, that led someone to Christ, that helped start this church they're receiving this letter for the first time. And so someone stands up and says, we got a letter from Paul. They're excited because they loved him. And word on the street was he was in prison. And so there was probably some expectation that, boy, this is going to be a Debbie Downer letter. Yet the opposite is completely true because Paul responds and uses the word joy 14 times alone in this chapter he uses the word rejoice and glad total of 19 times in the book the book itself is written to a group of people that 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 are living out their faith in such a way that Paul is just saying thank you Jesus thank you thank you for this group joy is there for our taking too Let me give you a definition. This is a definition that I've kind of worked out through the years. It's my own. And just listen to it. Don't write it down because it's long. If you want to grab it, you can grab it later by listening to the podcast or the video. But this is what would be my definition of joy. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything's going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Let me repeat that. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life and your life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. One of my favorite authors and one of my favorite preachers, even now at the age of 88, is still Chuck Swindoll, and I believe he is a picture of joy. And he wrote in one of his books his definition of joy and his observation of the local church. Listen what he says about joy. He says, I know of no greater need today than the need for joy. Unexplainable, contagious, outrageous joy. He said, when that kind of joy comes aboard our ship of life, it brings good things with it. Like enthusiasm for life, and determination to hang in there and the strong desire to be of encouragement to others. Such qualities make our voyage bearable when we hit the open seas and encounter high waves of hardship that tend to demoralize and paralyze others. There is nothing better than joyful attitude when we face the challenges that life throws at us. He said this, someone once asked Mother Teresa what the job description was for anyone who might want to work alongside of her in the grimy streets and narrow alleys of Calcutta with lepers. This was her response. Without hesitation, she mentioned only two things. The desire to work hard and a joyful attitude. It has been my observation, Swindall says, that both of these qualities are rare. But the second is much rarer than the first. Diligence may be difficult to find, but compared to an attitude of genuine joy, hard work is commonplace. He said, unfortunately, our country seems to have lost its spirit of fun and laughter. Recently, a Brazilian student studying at a nearby university told me what amazes him the most about Americans is their lack of laughter. I found myself unable to refute his criticism. Just look around, Swindoll says. Bad news, long faces, and heavy hearts are everywhere. Even in houses of worship, especially godly houses of worship. Much of today's popular music, which make consider a voice of the nation's conscience, promotes misery, sorrow, and despair. If sex and violence are not the pulsating themes of a new film some expression of unhappiness is. Newspapers thrive on tragedies and calamities, lost jobs and horrible accidents. The same can be said of television newscasts. Swindoll says even the weather reports give their primary attention to storms, droughts, and blizzards. Tomorrow is usually partly cloudy with a 20% chance of rain. Never, mostly clear with an 80% chance of sunshine. If you do not find laughter on the tube, either in its, it is a recorded laugh track on or some, stup- on some stupid sitcom or a stand-up comedian telling filthy jokes. He closes by saying this. This long face, heavy-hearted attitude has invaded the ranks of Christianity. Visit most congregations today and search for signs of happiness and sounds of laughter, and you often come away disappointed. Joy. The gigantic secret of Christians is conspicuous by its absence. He says, I find that inexcusable. The one place on earth where life's burdens should be lighter, where faces should reflect genuine enthusiasm, and where attitudes should be uplifting and positive, is the place this is the least likely to be true in, the local church. So Paul gives us a prescription for joy. And he reminds us of why we can have joy. Not only reminds us, he says... You are filled with joy. It's in you. It's your choice to exercise it. Grab your Bibles and let's go on this journey, this joy ride through the book of Philippians. And we'll begin by reading the first 11 verses. Would you stand in the auditoriums with me? And those of you online, would you stand in your homes as we read this together? Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Would you read it with me? Ready? Read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. "'Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you "'will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. "'It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. "'Since I have you in my heart, "'and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, "'all of you share in God's grace with me. "'God can testify how long for all of you "'and with the affection of Christ Jesus. "'And this is my prayer.' that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may have a seat. Let me give you this primary truth that I think kind of hinges every message that you and I will hear from the book of Philippians. Joy is the byproduct of salvation. Did you hear me? Joy is a byproduct of salvation. In other words, when you and I come to Christ, confess him as Lord, are born again or saved, joy comes with that. We have the fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, it lives in us. The fruit of the Spirit, a piece of that fruit is joy. We receive that at salvation. Now think again about the author of this book. There was a time in his life where he was joyless, where joy wasn't embedded in his heart and life. In fact, there was a time that Saul persecuted Christians. There was a name change in his life that we understand in Acts chapter 9. It's called the Damascus Road experience for Saul. And then that Damascus Road experience, he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus literally met him on the road, took the scales off his eyes, and he was immediately saved. And from that point on, his name was changed from Saul to Paul. The book of Acts talks about his pre-conversion self. Here's what Acts, listen, Acts chapter 8 and verse 3 says, Godly men were buried after the persecution. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged both men and women to prison. So before he wrote this book, and all the 13 books of the New Testament, there was a time that he was on a bent to murder Christians. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, in verse 1, prior to him meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, it says Saul, he was going to destroy the church. He was going from house to house and he was dragging both men and women to prison. On his way to do that, God met him on the road, radically changed his life, and as much passion as he had to murder Christians, he now has to lead people to Christ. His last encounter with elders... Acts chapter 20, there's this picture. He's meeting with the Ephesus elders. And it says that they're on the beach. And they realize it's the last time they will see Paul. And they even warned him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go near Rome. Don't head that way because you could lose your life. Yet Paul, who was now just as passionate to lead people to Christ as he was to kill people who knew Christ, says, I'm going anyhow. And it says that they wept with tears knowing this would be the last time that they would ever see Paul again in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. So now he's in a house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, knowing full well that he would soon die. Yet he says, oh, I want to write a letter to these people that I met 10 years ago. And I want to let them know that I am so proud of the way they're living out their faith. Insert the book of Philippians that we read today. Let me just say this about joy. Joy is never found in direct pursuit of something. You could look for it all day and never find it. It's embedded in you as salvation. It's not like we need to get up today and I need to go on this journey looking for joy. Where's joy at? And I need to find something or accomplish something or own something or be given this job or or have this marriage relationship or have this girl or guy or or have the trophy or whatever. No, no, we don't. It's not a pursuit of something. That's happiness, trying to find happiness, which is fleeting. We already have it. All we have to do is stop and say, I don't need to pursue. It lives in me because of Jesus Christ. It's given to us at salvation. The Bible says this about our salvation experience. It says, we are new creations. The old is what? Gone and the new has come. That was the picture of Saul. The old Saul was gone. Jesus met him on the road. The new creation has come. And so when we become new creations, we now have the fruit of the spirit living in us. But let's be honest. How many of us really live like new creations? How many of us are still living and, and we even freeze people in the past? And, 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 and I would say this, we need to quit taking advice from our high school yearbook autographs, the old us, and live like the new creation. I have a 1980 high schoollet yearbook from North Hagerstown High School. And if I were to read these to you, basically let me summarize most people's autographs, your autographs, Would probably say this, raise heck, they would say it differently and bottoms up. That's about it. That's the old you, isn't it? And yet, some of you are still taking advice from the old you, when in reality, we're new creations in Christ. We're no longer that person. And when we know who we are, we live differently. And so Paul says, look what he says in verse 3 about this group. He says, I thank God. My God, every time I remember you. And he says, in all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with what? Joy. Because of your partnership. That's an interesting word. The Greek word is cornea. And if we were to define koinia, we would say fellowship. And so you could say, I always pray with joy because of your cornea, your fellowship, in the gospel from the first day we met 10 years ago until now so there's this picture he sees them doing it well and he wants to give encourage them and so they receive this letter from a man who once was a killjoy and now is an apostle of joy the old became a new creation Paul is saying, yes, I might be lonely in prison. I might be chained 24-7 to a soldier, but the message of Jesus will still go forward because the old has gone and the new lives in me, regardless of my circumstances. He's sitting in house arrest, broke, beaten, sick. And in verse 4 says, I always pray with joy, Because of this koinia that I have with you in the gospel. A man who is chained in arrest prays with joy. Paul's saying, I might be lonely, but joy is a lifestyle for me. People might even say to you, and they've said to me on numerous occasions, Jim, you have no idea what circumstances I am under. And the truth is, I probably don't. And there are some circumstances that many of us face that are heavy and Paul says even we can feel overwhelmed to the point of death 2nd Corinthians that it's very heavy and there are circumstances that I don't but the truth is if you were to say that to me you have no idea what circumstances I'm under I might say this to you what are you doing under your circumstances as believers we can live above our circumstances And the power and hope of Jesus Christ. We can take it to him. We don't let the circumstances determine our joy. We can't let what's happening to us change who we are in Christ. And the reminder he gives them here is that they can have confidence in who he is. Often the underlying cause of joyless Christians is rooted in the lack of trust in God's plan for their lives. Why is it, and this might be the case for you, and I hope not, why is it that we can trust him to save us for an eternity, but not to guide us on earth? Why is that? Why is it, oh Jesus, I know I'm going to heaven, and I trust you and the, the work of the cr- Jesus, of you on the cross. I accept it freely. Thank you, Jesus. And I look forward to that day. But Lord, I don't know if you can get me through this. If God can give us eternal life, he can guide us through earthly problems. Amen. You see, somewhere along our journeys, we began to believe a lie. And here's how it goes. That suffering shouldn't be part of a Christian's life. Yet I read in Hebrews chapter 12, the author says there about Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus, perfect in every way. Died on a cross. Never committed a sin. And he says, for the joy set before him, he endured that suffering. Paul says this later. For Christ's, To live is Christ, but to die is gain. You see, when we set our minds on things above and not earthly things, we live differently. Maybe we need reminded of some basic Christianity from time to time. I know I do. I can run to the next thing and then forget about the truths, just basic 101 Christianity. Here's some basic truths that maybe you and I both need reminded of today. Let me just begin with this. Earth is not our home. Quit acting like it is. (laughs) This is not home. Life is not about you and me. It's about Jesus Christ. We will suffer. We are supposed to carry crosses. And the last time I checked, crosses require suffering. We will die. We will not live forever. Sin has destroyed and damages people and possessions and environments. That's the curse of sin. We, you and me, yes, Jim, we deserve hell. We don't deserve a perfect, painless, drama-free life. Our days are numbered, you heard Pastor Mike say last week. But in light of all that, here's basic Christianity. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrated his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, all that's true, but God, insert Jesus, died for us. Paul would later say this about basic Christianity, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem though, it's very evident and we're all guilty of it. The problem is this in our lives we focus on the wrong thing. For visual illustration, suppose this is the duration of your life. If I were to stretch a timeline from birth and those of us who know Christ, eternally. So this rope literally is a picture of eternity. So just just picture that, that with me. There's no end to what is to come. And so we have this incredible picture that God has given us of eternal life from the time we know him and get to know him to the end. So picture if you can, this is what's to come. And if I were able to, this rope would never stop. Eternity goes on and on and on and on. We are promised an eternity forever in heaven with Christ. When we trust in him as our Lord and savior, we have eternal life that's given to us. Now on the timeline of a continuum, if we could draw a line that was an, an, a, a, a line of infin- affinity, then there's only one little blip on this line that we would call earth. This represents our time on a continuum of forever. Imagine, that's our time on earth. This is the rest of our lives. Picture this for a second. The rest of your life. Why? Is it that all we dwell on is this? Think about it. And we let this mess up all this. That's why Paul said, what did he say? Set your minds on things above and not earthly things. We need to remind ourselves what is to come for us. Joy keeps our eyes on the good around us. Look at verse 6 with me. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, being confident of this, and I'll say it again, being confident of this, being confident, being confident, being confident, Paul says as he's seated in house arrest, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to what? What's your Bible say? Completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I love this part of the letter. He's trying to tell them to hold on and move forward. Everyone needs to know that Jesus is completely in control of our lives. He says, you can place your confidence in that. Just pause and camp there for a moment. The lack of joy in a Christian's life is clear evidence they lack confidence in God. That could be a very convicting statement for you today, or it could be a very affirming statement. The lack of confidence in God is evidence of lack of, of confidence a lack of joy in a Christian's life is clear evidence they lack confidence in God as a kid and you probably did too and maybe as an adult we are very familiar with Solomon when he wrote in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 trust in the Lord with all your what and what lean not what to your own understanding Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. Years before, Paul wrote this. He says, your confidence should be in the Lord. Solomon wrote it way before. Don't trust in yourself. Lean not into your own understanding. By trade, I'm a carpenter and I was a home builder for 10 years before I became pastor at Grace Community Church. And so I've framed multiple homes, I've built multiple houses, and I've read multiple blueprints, and I could still look at a blueprint and see it in 3D. And one of the tools that a carpenter carries is a level. You could even get a six-foot or an eight-foot level. And the primary purpose of a level is used two ways. First, to see something if something is level, and then to see if something is plumb. And so often when you would build a wall, you would stand it up, and you wanted to make sure the wall wasn't leaning left or right, and you would take the level up, and you would read to see if it was plumb. Because if you got the lower level out of whack a little, the next layer up will be leaning a little more. And by the time you get to the roof, if it's leaning, then the house is not square, Solomon said many years ago, trust in the Lord and lean not into your own understanding. I think the best visual, what happens when we lean to our own understanding is this picture right here, the leaning tower of Pisa. I don't know if you know history behind this tower, but I was doing some research again this week on the history of, the, of this tower. When it was built in 1170, after the completion of the first three towers of the leaning tower of Pisa, it began to lean. Martins would never have any leaning buildings, would they, Jeff? None at all. It began to lean. And you know why it was leaning? It's because the foundation that it was built on was built on soft ground. And so they tried to shore up the ground After the building was three stories tall, hoping to put another five stories on it. They completed the project and left it lean. Through the years, it began to gradually shift more because the foundation was soft. Then, during 1990, they began to redo the foundation. And between 1990 and 2001, the North Side Foundation were dug out and the tilt was reduced by a half degree. In 2008, scientists announced that the movement had finally stopped. And so we have this site, tourist Trap, called the Leaning Tower of Pisa, because it's not perfect and plumb. The word lean means a deviation from perpendicular. The Bible says don't deviate from the perpendicular because when you do, you will find yourself gradually getting farther and farther away and only living on your own understanding. I found something out this week that I didn't ever know and you might have, I didn't learn it when I was in history class. But you know what is inside of the leaning Tower of Pisa? Nothing. It's completely hollow. And I thought, hmm, that's what happens to us when we go to our brains and lean to our own understanding. We end up, our lives are like this. We have confidence that God who started a good work will complete it in us. He who began will bring on completion. How can we know that to be true? Because God says he will do it. Think about it this way. The narrative of your story and my story was written by God. How you respond to it is your choice. But I want you to remember this. God writes perfect stories with our lives. And if God were to write your story again, because Hebrews 12 says he is the author and perfecter of our faith. So if he's the author of our story, he wrote our story, he's the perfecter of it. He will make it complete and he's perfect in every way. If God were to rewrite your story, hear me out, he would write it exactly the same. You would be born to the same parents. You would be born in the same place. You would face the same struggles that you're facing today. You would end up where you're at today. There would be nothing about your story that would be different. Why? Because the God that we love is the author of our story, and he only writes perfect stories. You might say, well, Pastor Jim, I don't like my story. (laughs) Well then you have something to deal with God If you've ever read a book If you've ever read a biography or autobiography About someone It's a story of their life Right now our men in Fight Club are reading the Louis Zambrini story Unbroken It's an incredible story And if you were to jump into chapter 1 or 2 or 8 of Louis' story He is so far from God So far from God And if you begin to go through the pages of this book and if you finally get, those of you who haven't got that far yet, when you finally get to the end of this story, you will see a story of grace where Jesus saves his soul. But here's the problem. You and I want to be in the last chapter of the story. And right now you might only be in chapter 55 of your story. And here's what I know. God promises this, to write your story and to complete your life in a perfect way just for you. Like, that's good news, isn't it? Maybe, just maybe, if we were able to and we could, maybe we've forgotten that God's stories are better than Hallmark stories because they always end up, they get together, don't they? And the snow falls and everyone's happy. And they live happily ever after do you realize this that in Christ we live happily ever after did you hear me we live happily ever after why because our home is heaven And when you know that he's written your story, when you know he's confident of working it out for his good, then listen, maybe just maybe you and I need to spend time in Revelation before we read Genesis. Maybe we need to spend time in Revelation before we read the epistles. Maybe we need time in Revelation before we read the Old Testament. And we remind ourselves that we end in heaven and it's as good as it'll ever get. And even though right now I'm in chapter 23 and it's difficult, my God promised me that the best is yet to come. See, it's perspective. You see, the Lord has not folded his hands on your situation. He hears your prayers. He sees your seamless, hopeless situation. He feels your broken heart. He knows when you've lost that loved one. You might even had a child that once walked with God has now walked away and you're heartbroken over it. Maybe your husband left you and your wife left you. Maybe you just got a doctor's report that just rocked your world. Maybe you're not certain how you're gonna make it in these uncertain times. Maybe even your passion for Jesus is waning. I can read Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 and say this to you. Remain confident of this, that he who began a good work in them and in you, he will complete it and he will work it out for good. You see, when we know who he is and we stand in his power we can respond with joy because God's got it. It's in these kind of seasons that we must take firm confidence in the Lord because it's not up to us, it's up to God. And our God, you need reminded and I need reminded, has a 100% track record of winning. We don't have to depend on our own understanding because if we do that, we're the leaning tower of Pisa. All we have to do is walk in obedience to what Christ has already ordered for our lives. And it might be a very difficult season and you might have times like I have and Lord, I don't understand because if I was in charge, I would do this for my mom. And there are seasons when we're not fully aware of all the details of why what is happening in our lives, but hear me out. We can have confidence that he will complete it for his good. Many people consider verse six one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I would put it in my top 10. It's where we get the term perseverance of the saints or even the perseverance of God. Because it says, in verse 6 again, the verse 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And what does that mean to us today? Here's what this means theologically to you and me. Salvation begins with God. He makes the first move. And unless God took the initiative, we would still be running from him. God takes responsibility. Hear me out for completing this work in us. Nothing will block the accomplishment of His divine purpose in your life. Amen. Nothing. We can be confident in that. God is not finished with us yet. You know how I know that? Because you're still breathing. Well, make sure you hopefully you're still breathing. He won't let us stay the same we are today. Let me just ask a personal question. How many of you are a lot different than that? (laughs) Why? Because God has been doing the work of sanctification in your heart and life. And each day we're becoming more like him. He is chipping away at us until we are conformed into the likeness of his son. He promises to do that for those who are called according to his name. Some of us, if we're honest, we got a long ways to go, don't we? But listen, don't be in distress because of that. Just know that's God's perfect plan for your life. There will come a day when all of us will be perfect just like Jesus, and it will only happen when we die or he raptures us home. But it doesn't matter. Because here's what I know to be true. Some of us say this word Oh, it's hell on earth for me. Let me tell you, you and I have no clue of what hell is really like. This earth does not produce what hell is really like. But if we use that reference, here's what I know to be true. I'd rather be six inches from hell heading to heaven than six inches from heaven headed to hell. We have security a salvation that's so rich in Jesus Christ. The circumstances, the trials, the hardships, the, 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 the troubles that you and I go through that overwhelm you. And Paul said, I will, there will be times you'll be overwhelmed, even to the filling the point of death. Fail in comparison to what God has promised us that is coming. A place called heaven. No sin. No Satan, no temptation, no sickness, perfectness in every form. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. You know, I've been a Christian my whole life, 55 years I've known Jesus. I'm 60 years old. And I know this to be true that there are certain things that I find about believers that are very common. And this is what I find about joy-filled believers. This is my experience, maybe not your experience, but this is my experience. And right now, if I were able to, and you were able to, who is the most joy-filled person that comes to mind? Just, just in your mind, picture that person. These are the characteristics of people that I've noticed that tap into this incredible fruit that lives in them. These are things that come to mind. This is what I have observed in my life, and And four things come to mind for me. They often are in good health mentally, physically, and spiritually. Even in the midst of hard circumstances. Secondly, they value discipline and relationships with people. They aren't isolated from other people. They do life and community and do it in a joyful way. Thirdly, They are appreciative and thankful and their countenance are as bright, even in the pain that they face, they don't have long faces because they tap into the joy that lives in them. And lastly, they're positive in their interactions and they see the best in people. Joy is an attitude of the heart, birthed from confidence in God's plan for our lives. Imagine, if you can, again, this letter. Receiving good news from Paul, who they dearly loved. And there's a line in the letter that says, I pray with joy for you. Paul didn't wallow in self pity, he could have, he was in prison. Joy was the emotion through which he wrote this letter and expressed himself. Joy was not an emotion he felt, but a lifestyle that comes as a result of walking in the spirit and knowing that God is good on his word. You see, if you build your life on circumstances, you are going to be miserable at least as often as you are happy. Way too many people live this way. They live their lives seeking the next thing that makes them happy instead of finding joy and contentment in Christ alone. He is enough. C.S. Lewis said this about joy. He said, joy is the serious business of heaven. You know, we have teams that we root for and generally speaking, it's because you were born in that state I have all kinds of gear that's Maryland. There's a few of us, my boys do and our boys do. And so I have M hats that have turtles on it. And I know you make fun of turtles, but fear the turtle. And, and, and so you have your hometown. And, and so the truth is we wear that because that's where I'm from. And I grew up a Washington Redskin fan and I'm a Redskin fan, okay, I, I still am. And so I root for them and I root for Maryland. Because that's where I'm from, I'm from. That, that, that's where I live. But the truth is, is, that's not where I'm from. I'm from heaven, that's my home. I wonder what a hat with an H representing heaven, I wonder what the logo would look like. We need to get Chris Watson on this. I wonder, I wonder if we just wore hats that had H's on and people say, where are you from? Heaven. I wonder if we had shirts that just had heaven on them and as a reminder to us that this is not our home. This is our home and the best is yet to come. And because this is coming and I have it now, I can walk in joy. He closes up this portion by saying this in verse nine. He says, and this is my prayer for you. Can you picture them? Okay, what's he going to pray about? That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That phrase, pure and blameless, is the Greek word scandalous. It's where we get the English word hypocrisy. And the reason he used this phrase, pure and blameless, is because during this time, potters would make pottery. And if there was a crack in the pottery, they would take wax and they would rub wax in the crack in the pottery. And they would cover up the blemish. And so literally, some would say, have unwaxed lives. In fact, in Latin, it would say, live unwaxed lives. And so if you were to buy a piece of pottery during Paul's time, and you wanted to make sure it was unwaxed, you would literally take it from the potter and say, sit it or set it in the sun. And so you would take it out into the baking sun of the ancient, and in a matter of minutes, what happened to the wax? It would melt away to reveal the scandalous that was inside, the hypocrisy in the pottery. And so Paul says, let your love abound more and more, so that when you you are tapping into Christ, you will live pure and blameless, without scandaled lives. Sun tested, S-U-N, so that when your life is examined, it will be without wax. Isn't that what we do? Our lives before S-O-N. And Paul is saying, live in such a way when it is S-O-N tested that it won't reveal the blemishes. And the scandalous hypocrisy, but it will reveal someone that's abounding in love, living in faith, exuding joy, and leading the world to Christ. Viktor Frankl said this many years ago everything can be taken from a man, but one thing the last of human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Here is a man that's locked up. Soon to die. Yet even from the prison cell, he finds joy in knowing that God is in complete control of his life. And he wants them to know that it is well with his soul. Why? 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 Why can we do that? Because all of our lives, God has been faithful to us. We can be confident knowing that even what we face today, that God will turn it into good and he will complete what he has started in us. Amen. Amen. That's what he's saying. Make your confidence in God a subtle fact. And when you do, and when I do, joy will bust out of you. When you walked in today, you probably saw a lot of smiling faces in the West foyer. And their purpose is this. There's one over here. We want you to grab one of those. Now listen, grab a balloon and hand it off to someone. It's got hot chocolate attached to it. And go to someone and say, man, I appreciate you and I want you to know that I appreciate what you're doing and I want you to know that there's this joy in me that comes from this relationship with Jesus and I could not not just pass it on to you. So grab one on your way out. Lord, all our lives you've been faithful. You're good on your word. I pray that Our confidence would be settled in you. And when it is, we'll go back to all these moments where you have been faithful, faithful, faithful. And God, you continue, your blessings continue, and your goodness continues to run us down. In Jesus' name, amen.